Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. mentioned last week that I had only gotten to page three of my notes and that I had 12 pages on this particular topic and series. So this week I created three more. So judging by my email, the reaction to this series so far has been very good. Once again, Kellen got shout outs. People appreciate that we're going back and just spelling out the basics of what it is to be a Christian. But then this week, in a conversation with another member of GCA, she said that in talking about Paul on Mars Hill, that I mentioned several times the gospel and the centrality of the gospel. But she said, but you never really did define what the gospel is. And so these three pages are about defining the gospel. And it really does fit very well in the Be the Christian series because we certainly as Christians ought to be able to define what the gospel is that is definitional to what it is to be a Christian. 
we are dependent on the gospel, we say we believe the gospel, we promote the gospel, well then, okay, what is the gospel? The term gospel, the English word gospel, is found, well, 99 times in the NASB. It's found 92 times in the New English translation of the Bible. But the Greek noun, as I've told you before, is euangelion. And that occurs 76 times. And there is a verb form of it, euangelizo, which occurs 54 times, which means to bring or to announce good news. Now, for those of you who are mathematicians in the crowd, you may have noticed that the Greek word then, in its noun and verb form, occur 130 times, and then 99 times the English word in the NASB. That's because it's not always translated as the word gospel, but it always means good news. In the modern church, the term gospel has become sort of a word of art, sort of a technical term. And so people will put the definite article on the front of it, and you can hear when they say the definite article that they have capitalized all three letters, T-H-E, the gospel. But the Bible actually speaks of various different gospels, various different good news tellings. Take a look at Luke 2 for just a moment. I think this will help us in our understanding what the euangelion is. Luke 2, we're going to start reading at verse 9. It says, and an angel. That word angel right there is the word angelos. In Greek letters, it would be like an A-G-G, the first three letters, but that double G in the Greek has an N-G sound, so it's pronounced angelos. And that's why when it migrated into the English language, we spell it as an NG so that we still make that sound with our pronunciation. But it's angelos. I want you to hold on to that word for just a moment. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood between them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid For behold, I bring you good news, that is the word euangelizo. In fact, that entire phrase, I bring you good news, is the single Greek word euangelizo, which is the verb form of bringing good news. I bring you good news of great joy, megaskara. I'm bringing you news of great happiness and joy which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, both words, euangelizo and euangelion, both of those words are derived from the noun angelos. And the reason that we looked at that passage is because it's an angelos who is telling the euangelizo. It is a messenger, an angelos is. In classic Greek, then, 
the word euangelos was one person who would bring a good message either of victory at war or some political or personal news that caused great joy. So this was a classic Greek word that was in very common usage when Jesus came onto the planet. It is not unique to Christianity. And there was somebody known as the euangelos who was the bringer of good news. Now there is one more form of that word in the middle voice. The verb can be euangelizomai. It means to speak as a messenger of gladness or to proclaim good news. The reason that I'm taking the time to break down those Greek definitions is to help you understand that when you see the word gospel, what you're really seeing is a very common word that just simply identifies good news. And in the Bible, we find good news about several different things. And so we read about gospels of various different things. But it doesn't mean, if you get those gears in your head moving, that says, oh, gospel, that always means death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is the essence of what the gospel is. And so whenever I see the word gospel, I have to somehow shoehorn the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ into this sentence because that's always what gospel means. That's not true. What gospel always means is good news, and then it is contextually defining what the good news is. It is good news about something or other. Now, both this noun and the verb are used so extensively in the New Testament that it's no wonder that eventually we started to think of it as a distinctly Christian term. But it's not. It's a real common Greek term. And there were a whole lot of Greek people who said a lot of good news about politics and about warfare and about somebody had a child and about so there were a great many things that were referred to as euangelion which if they were translated into the English language would mean that they were a great many gospels and that's hard for us to think about because we think of the word gospel as that very distinct Christian terminology So let's look at a couple of the ways that that word is actually used in the Bible just to kind of demonstrate what I'm talking about. This term gospel is sometimes found alone with the definite article, the gospel. There is the gospel. But very often it's modified by terms that focus on different aspects of good news that are presented throughout the Bible. It's modified by descriptive phrases like... In Mark 1.14, you read the gospel of God. That this is the good news that God himself is responsible for. That God himself sent this good news to sinful human beings. The news that they can be saved through the finished work of Christ. And so, the gospel of God. Mark 1 even speaks of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or Romans 1.9, which speaks of the gospel of his son. All of those could be references directly or indirectly to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But then if you think of it in just those terms, what are you going to do when you get to Matthew 4.23 or Matthew 9.35 or Matthew 24.14, which talks about the gospel of the kingdom? 
And in each of those cases, Jesus used that terminology, and he used it before he'd been to the cross. And yet he uses the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. So I'm emphasizing that when you hear the word gospel, in your brain, think good news about. Because what Jesus was preaching was good news about the kingdom, which, by the way, can open up a whole eschatological can of worms because here's Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, talking to a Jewish audience who are anticipating the kingdom to come, the kingdom that they've been promised by all the prophets of Israel. Jesus comes and brings them good news about the kingdom. It's not bad news like, well, you're eliminated now. Well, it's all about the church now. It's good news about the kingdom, which, by the way, I think, is why after his death, burial, and resurrection, and 40 days of talking specifically about the kingdom, the apostles would say to him, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Are you going to do it now? Well, if he had been three and a half years of preaching bad news about the kingdom, they wouldn't have asked that question. So the implications of the gospel of the kingdom are varied, but also you only find that in the book of Matthew. And the book of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. It is the most Jewish of the Gospels, written for Jewish readers. And so for Matthew to write to Jewish readers that there's good news about the kingdom, they would immediately know what kingdom was being talked about. Just thought I'd throw that in just to get your eschatological juices flowing. Before the cross, to a Jewish audience, Matthew records that Jesus was going through all of Galilee and he was teaching in their synagogues and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Matthew 9.35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every sickness. Matthew 11.2, now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see and hear. And then he was actually quoting from Isaiah 35, saying, Look, here's the fulfillment of what you expected from Isaiah. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are getting up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What gospel would that have been since Jesus hadn't been to the cross yet? And yet he said, the poor have the gospel preached to them. So what gospel can that possibly be? We've read in Matthew 4, 23 and 9, 35, good news about the kingdom. Well, it's only if you keep that word gospel in the good news context that you can also understand Jesus saying, the poor have good news preached to them. Exactly like Isaiah predicted. There's also the gospel of the grace of God. We read about that in Acts 20, verse 24. There's the gospel of the glory of Christ. We read that in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Ephesians 6, 15, we read about the gospel of peace, the good news of peace between man and God. But then in Revelation 14, 6, we read an eternal gospel. That's the first place that that shows up. 
in an eschatological end-of-the-world context, we read about an eternal gospel. Let me see if I can clear up for a moment what the eternal gospel may very well be. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 24 is Jesus telling what is going to come in advance before he returns. His disciples have asked him, what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And in the midst of describing his coming and the end of the age, one of the signs of his return is, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. So does that mean that the church has to get busy and make sure that they preach the gospel of the kingdom, whatever that is, however we define that, do we have to hurry up and make sure that the whole world knows the gospel of the kingdom because Jesus won't come back and the end won't happen until then? Well, no. Revelation 14.6 tells us that God accomplishes that. In fact, God accomplishes it by sending an angelos in order to spread the euangelion to the whole world. And it is, in fact, a sign against them because it is a preachment that goes out to the unbelieving world after the church is gone and just before Christ comes back in judgment. One of the signs of that return, Matthew 14, 6, is, and I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Okay, that would be everybody. That's the whole of the earth. So what did Jesus say? This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world. Then you get to the book of Revelation, and an angel comes and preaches to the whole world, to everybody on the planet, And what he preaches is the eternal gospel. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Jesus said there was going to be the preachment of the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world. Then the end comes. So the angel says with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Okay, that's the angelic proclamation of the everlasting gospel to the unsaved residents of planet earth. It is the statement, fear God, give him glory. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. It's very similar to Paul on Mars Hill explaining the God that they didn't know and starting with he's the God who made everything. He's the God who made heaven and earth. He is the God who is defined by his creation of absolutely everything. Well, then the angelos comes and says, that same God who is the creator of heaven and earth and everything, it's the hour of his judgment. And yet that is referred to as the everlasting good news. Now, who is that good news to? It's not particularly good news to the people who are about to run to the caves and the rocks and the dens and say, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us from that. So this is not good news for them. 
But it's good news to all the saved. It is good news to God. It is good news to the angelic host. It is good news to all of those who are proclaiming that the everlasting God who is in charge of everything is finally pouring out his judgment just like he always said he was going to. And to them, that's good news because God is keeping his word and doing exactly what he always said he was going to do. But you cannot shoehorn that into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in an evangelical way. Make sense? So I'm just trying to show you that when you read the word gospel in the Bible, it doesn't always mean the same thing. What it does mean every time is good news, good news about something, and then you have to look at the context to determine what that good news is. But then, as I said a moment ago, every once in a while, the Bible actually does refer to the euangelion singularly with a definite article, the gospel. So in those cases, what is the gospel? What defines the gospel? The central truth and fundamental tenet of the gospel is that God has provided a way of salvation for men through the fact that he gave his son to be a sacrifice. His son suffered as the sacrifice for sin. He overcame death. And now he offers a share of his eternal reward with all those who come to him in faith. So it's really, really, really good news because it's the gift of God. It's not something that can be earned by our work or by doing enough penance or by our self-improvement. We can't earn it. It is given to us as a gift of grace. Therefore, it is really, 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 really good news. But can we find somewhere in the Bible where the essential elements of the gospel are defined for us? And the answer is yes, or else I wouldn't have brought it up. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 15, turn there. I'm going to read the first eight verses. Paul here in writing to the church at Corinth has spent most of this first letter correcting all the things that they've been doing wrong. The church at Corinth was an erring church on many, many different levels. And so Paul is correcting them. And then after all those corrections, he brings them back to the bare essence of what the gospel is. I really like the fact that in writing to the Corinthians and enlisting all the ways that they've been inappropriate, all the ways that they have erred in their Christian walk, I really like that Paul never said, and that's it, you're not Christians. Instead, what he says is, because you are Christians, you need to behave better. You need to act like Christians. You need to walk like Christians. And now let me remind you of the essentials of what you have to believe to be a Christian. That's where he starts at chapter 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. Your standing before God is all wrapped up in whatever Paul is about to define as the gospel. 
by which also you are saved. You are saved as a direct result of what I am about to describe to you that I am calling the gospel. This is the same Paul who writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Now, just so that we're really, really clear, just so there's no confusion, I'm trying very hard to be as clear and didactic as I can be this morning. Does the gospel properly preached, correctly advanced, does that gospel save people? And can you base that argument on Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes? I would contend that it's not the gospel that saves. Jesus saves. It's always Christ that saves. But he uses means in order to tell people about himself and about what he did and about what he accomplished. So never be confused about who or what saves. It is always the grace of God and the finished work of Christ that saves people, that draws people, that redeems people, that sanctifies people, that justifies and glorifies people. That is always the working of God through Jesus Christ. But then we are told to go out and tell the gospel because it is through that gospel that people are saved, because they are brought to faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I will tell it to anybody who will listen to it because it is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God works through the gospel, resulting in the salvation of individuals. Paul uses the same language here, by which, by that gospel, you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you unless you have believed in vain which would be the same as being an unbeliever. So here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That is a jam-packed phrase. Paul is saying, I didn't make this up. I didn't get this from other people who constructed it. This is what I received by the revelation of God to me. And then I delivered it to you as of first importance. Paul writes a tremendous amount of sound doctrine, things that he calls the whole, the healthy doctrine. By the way, doctrine just means teaching. So therefore, I would argue that what he's about to say is also doctrine because it is teaching. But when we say the word doctrine, usually what is meant within Christian circles is the predestination stuff, the elected before the foundation of the world stuff. That's doctrine. If we're talking about the balance between Jesus's humanity and his divinity, people will say, well, that's doctrine. 
But actually, any teaching about Christ is doctrine. And Paul is perfectly comfortable launching into very deep, very complicated doctrinal statements that even Peter had to admit are sometimes difficult to understand. Well, Paul says that they are part of his phrase, my gospel. This is according to my gospel, my good news, my telling of it. But he's also able to take the central issues and say, but this is of first importance. While we're talking about all the sound doctrine stuff, while we're talking about the predestinary stuff, who did Paul write that to? The answer is the church. He wrote that to the church. In other words, he wrote the deeper, strong meat teaching to people who were already saved. They were already in the church, and they needed to be taught. We'll look at that in just a moment. But they were already saved. So how did they become already saved? What do they need to know? What do they need to adhere to to be eternally saved? Well, that's what Paul is going to define for us here. And he's going to say, this is of primary importance. This is of first importance. You can argue all day about the other doctrinal stuff that Paul discusses. But without this, you're not Christian. This is definitional to what Christianity is. So I delivered to you as of first importance... That doesn't mean first chronologically. It means of primary importance. This is top drawer stuff. This is the stuff you got to get right in order to be saved. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Brilliant the depth of understanding that Paul packed into those few words. Not only is he stating a historic reality, Jesus of Nazareth lived on the planet and proved himself to be the very son of God, and then he died. That's a historic reality. We know that happened, he says to his audience. We know. We're witnesses of it. We know that he was crucified on a cross. We know. But then in order to understand why he died and what was actually accomplished on the cross, Paul goes back to the scripture and he goes back to the Old Testament and he goes back to the suffering servant and he goes back to all the stuff in the Old Testament that explains why the Messiah was going to die. What was he accomplishing? That he bore our sins, that he healed our sicknesses. That he did away with our iniquities. That's said in the Old Testament. So Paul could say, okay, first fact of primary importance. First thing you got to know. You got to know that Jesus Christ died. And the reason that he died was for our sins in accordance with what the scriptures say. See the brilliance of it? And that he was buried the reason that the essential gospel always includes buried 
is because that's the evidence that he was dead. You don't bury people who you don't think are dead. Is that obvious enough? He was actually put in a tomb where he remained for three days and three nights. Why? Because Jewish custom and tradition was, since they didn't embalm people, they would leave people for three days and three nights just in case they weren't really dead. But after three days and three nights, they determined that that was it, the soul had left the body. In fact, there was one Jewish tradition that said that the soul hovered around the body for three days, three nights, just in case. That's why Jesus, when he heard that Lazarus was dead, waited three days before he went, just to show that he was really, truly, genuinely dead. So essential number two of the gospel is that Jesus was buried, which is the evidence that he was dead. And that's really important to really be convinced of in order to see how wonderful the third point is. Because the third point is he was raised. He resurrected on the third day. And then Paul uses that phrase again, according to the scriptures. This was predicted in the scriptures. And therefore he came and did it. And we know why he did it. Because we have the scriptures explaining all the why of it. So Paul is drawing his doctrinal understanding of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ from what the prophets have already said about the Messiah who was going to come and die and resurrect again. So not only is it a historic fact in Paul's telling of it, these things happened. He died, he was buried, and then he got up again. Those are facts. But the theology that lays behind it, the purpose of God that lays behind it, the reason that he came to the planet and died and was buried and raised again is all drawn from the scripture. So Paul's saying, see, I didn't make this up. This is what was told me. This is what was revealed to me. And it's of first importance. It's of primary importance. And that's why I've told it to you, and I've told it to you, and I'm telling it to you again. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove to be in vain. Okay, so what was the point of Paul going through that list? He appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the Twelve, he appeared to more than 500 brethren. Most of them are alive, you can go and check with them. And then he appeared to James, he appeared to the apostles, last of all he appeared to me. We know that later on he's going to appear to John on the Isle of Patmos. Why the list? After he has just said, this is of primary importance. 
Well, it's because it's the evidence that he's actually alive. It is the evidence that he did, in fact, resurrect. So Paul is stating historic facts, the three primary facts that he refers to as the essence of the gospel is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Now, is there a place for all that other doctrinal stuff? Is there a place for all the high theology that Paul writes to the church, to believers later on? Yes, absolutely there's a place for it because the church needs to be taught. And the more that the church is taught, the more the church understands what is actually included in the essentials of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. All of those other doctrines all start with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If you don't have the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, who cares if you were elected before the foundation of the world? What were you elected to? You have to have the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to begin the entire Christian teaching. And so that is what Paul would refer to in its very simple, straightforward form. That is the gospel. Now that I have defined the gospel, the natural question would be, but what about Paul writing to the Galatians and saying that there is another gospel? Because that's another use of the word gospel. And it's using it as a word of art. It's using it as a technical term. It's not just saying there is another good news because he's about to say it's not good news. In fact, if anybody says it, they deserve to be burned. They deserve to be sacrificed for the glory of God. So it's not good, good news. And yet Paul refers to it as another telling, another proclamation you read about it in Galatians 6, if you want to turn there real quick. If you're in the book of 1 Corinthians, go past 2 Corinthians, and then you'll hit Galatians. Turn to Galatians 1, right at the very beginning. Galatians 1, starting at verse 6. By starting in verse 6, we've really just skipped Paul saying hello. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of God for a different gospel. The Greek word there is heteros. It is the word from which we get hetero, which means opposite. Heterosexual means that you are attracted to the opposite sex. So heterodoxy is opposite orthodoxy. So he says there is this heteros, this opposite gospel that exists, which is really not another. It's not allos. It's not the same in content. It's not the same in its result. It's really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you, who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which has been preached to you, well, then let him be accursed, anathema. I can't help but be amused by the fact that Paul writes it twice. 
I can only assume that he thinks that when his readers read, read this, that they're going to go, he can't mean that. That can't possibly be what he's saying. He can't say, if someone preaches a different gospel than that, let him be anathema. So in verse 9 he says, And as we said before, so now I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? So now you can understand why Paul would say, I'm going to now tell you what's of first importance, what's of primary importance. These elements of the gospel that are demonstrated in the scriptures already, that are explained to us theologically in the scriptures, these actual physical historic events that actually took place, these form the very essentials of what is the gospel. And then he says, now be careful, because there are going to be people who are going to try to tell you something different than this. They may say, he didn't really get up. He merely swooned. He didn't really die. And then when the cold of the tomb hit him, well, then he, he woke up. He wasn't really dead. Okay, that would be a different gospel. That would be an antithetical gospel, because it is different than the essential gospel. And the essential gospel is Jesus actually died, actually buried, actually raised again, and we have the theology of it, and we have the evidence of it. We have the witness of it. When Paul talks about another gospel, just as long as I'm being really specific, I should also point out that what Paul was dealing with in Galatia was that there were some who had come to Galatia. In fact, go to chapter 2 real quick. The first four verses will kind of clear it up for you. Paul writes, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I told them about it, I did so in private, to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Okay, so how were they trying to pervert that message? Well, they were saying that for Gentiles to be saved, the Gentiles had to be circumcised. That's why Paul makes a big deal of the fact that Titus was with us, came with us to Jerusalem, and they didn't compel him to be circumcised because they understood that I was going to withstand that. Circumcision is for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. And if you say the only way you can be saved is if you fill in the blank. If you are circumcised, then you have created another gospel. You've created a heteros gospel. Because it's not simply the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ 
and this, and circumcision. In our modern church world, people put all kinds of additional behaviors or additional beliefs. I've been to churches, not a word of a lie, I've been to churches that said women who wear pants are not redeemed. Women wear dresses. That's what's appropriate. People do that. And if you wear a skirt, it better be below your knees. And men, when they come to church, better have a tie. So I'm saved today. (laughs) The rest of you, not so much. It's amazing what people will do, what people will add to the essentials of the gospel. And any time that they add Jesus died, buried, resurrected, and, as soon as you get to that word and, you're beginning to construct a different gospel. And you have to adhere to this series of propositions. And you have to be part of the Catholic Church. And you have to do it the way we do it. You have to adhere to our particular traditions and our particular denomination. As soon as you hear somebody say death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and they're well on their way to constructing what Paul said is another gospel, a different gospel. Because the Judaizers were saying death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and circumcision. And that's the only way you could be saved, according to them. You get the difference? Okay, let me drive this point home. Turn to Acts 10 for just a moment. This is the story of Peter going to the house of Cornelius. You probably recall the story. Peter was on the housetop. He was hungry. God sends down a large tablecloth full of unclean foods, says to Peter, rise and kill and eat. Peter argues with God. There's nerve. And says, no, my Lord, nothing unclean. No, I've never eaten anything like that. No. So God pulls it back up into heaven, does it two more times. And then men from the household of Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and Peter is adamantly believing at this moment that Jesus is the uniquely Jewish Messiah, therefore Gentiles are still unclean and unsaved, and he wouldn't so much as eat with Gentiles, which is why he dissembled in Galatia when he was eating with Gentiles, and then some came from Jerusalem, from James, and immediately he dissembled and acted like he hadn't been eating with them, and then Paul had to withstand him to his face because he was to be blamed, because he was a hypocrite, and I'm just glad to know that Peter, after being saved, after preaching at Pentecost, after being restored three times by Jesus, could still be hypocritical, could still do things that there's just no explanation for. And yet it wasn't that he was unsaved. It was just that he was still battling his flesh. And that's really good news if you're anything like me. And I hope to God you're not. So Peter is called by the men of Cornelius' house to come with them to go speak to Cornelius and his family and his household. And the angel of the Lord says, go with them. Don't doubt anything. Go on, go with them. 
So he gets there to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius essentially says, I saw a vision, and I was told to send for you, and that you would come tell us what we need to know. So, okay, what do you got? Why are you here? I was told in a vision to get you, and you're here now. Why are you here? That's where we're going to pick up. Verse 34. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the things which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. But God was with him, and we are witnesses of all the things that he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Here's Peter preaching the essentials of the gospel. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Same thing. He just told the essentials of the gospel. It is Jesus he died, he was buried, he raised again. There are witnesses that can prove that. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. There's the eschatological end of it all. Same thing Paul said to the men on Mars Hill that God has fixed a day by which he's going to judge all the inhabitants of the earth, through a certain man, through Jesus Christ. Peter says the same thing. Okay, so what has Peter said so far according to the scripture? Don't change anything. Don't imagine anything. Don't add anything to the text. What did Peter say to the household of Cornelius? He said the essential elements of the gospel that Paul has already defined for us as of first importance. That is all that Peter has said so far. And what was the result? Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words. So it's very specific. That's all we know. All we know is that those are the words so far. And while he was still telling them, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message and all the circumcised believers, all the Jews who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. 
Okay, here's my point of reading all that. What did Peter preach? The essence of the gospel, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. What was the result? They received the Holy Spirit as evidenced by the fact that they spoke in tongues. Peter saw that as sufficient evidence that they were actually eternally saved and said, let's baptize them immediately in the name of Jesus Christ. So was the essential gospel, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ enough to save people according to the Bible? There's no way to say it's not. But then watch what happens. Going on to chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. Of course they did. Because they're of the same opinion that Gentiles are filthy dogs and that Gentiles can't be saved. And what is he doing going into the home of a Gentile? And what is he doing eating with them and living with them? When Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him saying, You went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, I was praying, I was in a trance, I saw a vision. A certain object came down with a great sheet lowered by the four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me, and when I had fixed my gaze upon it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air, and I also heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat, but I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered into my mind mouth but the voice from heaven answered a second time saying what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy and this happened three times and everything was drawn back up into the sky and behold at that moment three men appeared before the house in which I was staying having been sent to me from Caesarea and the spirit told me to go with them without misgivings and these six brethren went with me also and we entered into the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in the house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here. And he shall speak the words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. What were those words he preached by which they were saved? The things that Paul said were of first importance. The gospel the essential elements of the gospel. And that was sufficient to save people. And the angel of the Lord said to Cornelius, Peter's going to come tell you words by which you're going to be saved. And then Peter came and said, those words. And he was saved. I'm still trying to make a point. Stick with me. I'm going somewhere. Hang with me here. And as I began to speak, even Peter knows, I was just beginning to speak. I didn't have time to elucidate a great deal of doctrine. I didn't have time to go into a whole lot of stuff. I preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and even as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God therefore gave to them the same spirit as he gave us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, then who was I to stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God saying, 
Well, then God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. So, there were those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in Jerusalem, that arose in connection with Stephen and his stoning, and they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word, the word of the gospel, the story of Jesus, and speaking it to no one except to the Jews only. So it's very clear that they're still feeling like Peter felt initially. I, this is the Jewish Messiah who is saving the nation of Israel, and so we need to go tell scattered Jews who are living among the Gentiles, we need to go tell them. But, verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also and preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and he began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Okay. Considerable numbers of saved Gentiles have been brought to the Lord, and all we have read so far, if we stick to the text, all we have read so far is that what they have heard is the essential gospel. What they have heard is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that was sufficient, that was adequate for the Holy Spirit to fall, and for them to be redeemed and saved forever. If you want to say... Though some of these men said something else beyond that, you'd have to prove it from the text, which you cannot do. The text has already defined for us what the essential preachment was, and it was sufficient to actually save great numbers of people. But then look at what happened. Barnabas, verse 25, left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and it came about that for an entire year... They met with the church and taught them. They were already saved. They had already received the Holy Spirit. Now they needed to be taught. So Paul went there for an entire year to teach considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Okay, so what's the point of all that? Does the Pauline teaching, the Pauline sound doctrine, the strong meat teaching, does it have its place? Certainly it does. I love the sound doctrine of Paul. I love the predestination election stuff. I love all that, but Paul taught that to already saved people. And if I can put a very fine point on it, that means it cannot be a prerequisite to be saved. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. You're saved because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You're saved because of the grace of God. You're saved because God in Christ did absolutely everything necessary for your full, complete redemption, justification, glorification, salvation forever. God did all that. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. 
But within the church, Paul wrote letters to the church, and those letters contain the rest of the doctrine and teaching so that we have a fuller understanding of what Christ did. But what Christ did is described of first importance in the essentials of what is the gospel. Does that make sense? Now look, that's just Bible. It's a plain, very clear reading of the Bible. If you add anything to the finished work of Jesus, anything, even if it's a good thing, even if it's a commendable thing, if you add anything to the finished work of Christ, you are well on your way to creating a heteros gospel. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, well then that was all introduction <laughs> and does not count against my time. And now we're going to go back to the be a Christian topic. I just want to read two passages to you and then starting next week I will get to what I've been promising you for weeks that we would start talking about the benefits of Christianity. Turn to Romans 12. We started this series by saying that the chief characteristic, the defining characteristic of genuine Christianity, according to Jesus, is that you love one another. He said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That is the chief demonstration that you are walking after Christ. So Romans 12, starting at verse 9, says, let love be genuine. You can't fake that kind of love. You can't fake sacrificial love. And don't act like you're loving other people or be good to other people just so that other people can see it. And think, boy, look at you go. You must be really super Christian because you're really doing good things. Instead, he says, let the love that drove you to do those things, let it be a genuine love. Abhor what is evil. You know, the Bible defines what evil is. And much of what the Bible defines as evil are evil actions, evil behavior, evil manifestations that come through your flesh and then you behave according to that evil. You're supposed to hate that. You're supposed to hate your sin. You're supposed to hate your rebellion. If you've grown comfortable with your sin, if you and your sin have become buddies to the point where you don't think it's all that bad, then you're not genuinely abhorring it. And then on the opposite side, Paul says, and cling to Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, strive for it. Strive to demonstrate the value of your brethren who you love and who you sacrifice for. Do not be slothful in zeal. Don't let this rest. Don't let this become secondary to you. Don't be slothful in your zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. In that context, he's saying that you serve the Lord by serving other people. 
by showing honor to other people, by being brotherly affectionate toward other people. When life is going well and you're full of hope and you're looking forward to the return of Christ, those are blessed times. And he says rejoice in those times. Rejoice in hope. But be patient in tribulation. When the difficulties of life come, when the tribulations of life come, then you're to endure it, knowing full well that sovereign God has got this under control. So then be constant in prayer. Don't ever feel like you're all prayed up, you're good to go. Be continual, be constant in praying to God, looking to God, understanding that God is in control of those times of hope and those times of tribulation. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with them who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And live in harmony with one another. That just means get along with each other. And one of the best ways to get along with each other is to give up on your own ego, your own pride, your own sense of, hey, me first. If you give up on that, you're able to live peaceably with other people, in harmony with other people. He says that very thing. Don't be haughty walking around with your nose in the air thinking that you're better than other people. Don't be haughty, associate with the lowly, and never be wise in your own sight. Don't be conceited. Don't be egocentric and full of yourself. Verse 17, repay nobody evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Okay, you're living in, you're walking out your life in a godless society. That's as true today as it's ever been. And as you're walking out your life in this godless society, are you supposed to be taking your own vengeance? Are you supposed to be fighting with people? Are you supposed to be arguing with other people? He says, don't pay evil for evil, but then do. He's back to doing. He's back to being. Be the Christian. You do this you do what is right. You do what is honorable. You behave yourself in an honorable way in the sight of everybody, in the sight of the evil world, in the sight of the God-hating world, in the sight of the world that would rather you just shut up and go away rather than fight with them, argue with them, get up in their face. I don't know how much of the riots you've watched, any of the video out in Portland, or other places in the country. But one of the key characteristics of those riots is people yelling at other people, getting up in their face and being just as abrasive and offensive and argumentative as they possibly can. Okay, Paul's definition of what it is to be a Christian is be the opposite of that. Instead, live peaceably with all men, live at harmony with one another, and then be honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and believe me, his vengeance is going to be a whole lot more effective than you yelling at somebody. 
His vengeance is eternal vengeance, and so leave it up to God. You, as the Christian, just live at peace with people as much as is within you. There are some people you're just not going to be able to live at peace with. But then, rather than take vengeance, walk away. Live quietly and be honorable in front of them. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We'll call it right there. Because I know it's getting later. But let me also just say that this phrase for many years... This phrase, uh, feeding your enemy, giving your enemy some water, and in that way you're heaping burning coals on his head, I've always seen that as a negative. Like, yeah, if you're good to other people who are your enemy, who are enemies of God, by being kind to them, you're really judging them and heaping burning coals on their heads. That's the way I've always read it. And then in preparation for the five-part series that I did for the conference that happened this week in Texas... I started studying out that phrase, and it turns out that that was a very well-known, very popular phrase, and it was actually a very positive thing. If your neighbor, during the winter, if his fire went out, then the whole family is cold. The whole family is going to freeze. And if you have a fire burning, they would bring a pail, a bucket over, which oftentimes, as you see in the Middle East, People would carry things on their heads. And he would bring his coal bucket over, and you would put coals, burning coals in there so that they could relight their fire. And he would hold that on his head as you poured the, the burning coals into it. So really, it's another example of kindness. And it became a word of art, a phrase of art, where when you did good things to people, that could be called putting burning coals on their heads. It was a demonstration of being good to your neighbor. And contextually, that makes much more sense because Paul is saying all these really positive things. Be good, do right, be honorable, and then burn them! You know, there's no chance that's what he's really getting at. Instead, what he's saying is, be kind to your enemy. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Because in doing so, you're doing the same thing as giving him burning coals to keep his family warm. You're being kind to your neighbor. Therefore, keep being kind to your neighbor and don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All of that and much, much more is what it is to be a Christian. A Christian understands and believes and promotes the gospel. A Christian, when he is in the family of believers, teaches and promotes the sound doctrine that Paul lays out for us. The same way that when we're among believers, we promote and teach the prophecy of the Old Testament, what the prophets have already told us. All of the theology in the Bible is all available for the edification of all believing saints. But I hope I have proven to you this morning that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, biblically speaking, is not only the essence of the gospel, believing that can get you saved. And why? Why is that? Why? I just, I got to stop. I know I got to stop. 
But why is the essential gospel sufficient to get people saved? Because Jesus saves. And he can do it while you're still just beginning to talk, like Peter did. So tell the truth, tell the gospel, tell it as facts, and tell what the theology is that lays behind the facts. But don't ever get confused about what and who saves. Jesus saves. Got it? Got it. Questions? I saw her hands. She did this. <laughs> she knew I was done, and she did this. <laughs> Score! Any questions at all? Well, then, I think it's appropriate at this moment, if we can get our piano player up here, and I think it is appropriate at this moment that we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, because it is the grace of God and Jesus himself that saves his people through the preaching of his gospel.
you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.